Tanse, that's hello in Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. William departed from York Factory on October 1st, 1816, arriving at Oxford House on October 24th, after struggling with severe weather. This was his first meeting of his newborn son, Colin Robertson Sinclair. William was the chief at Oxford House for 1816 through 1817. The Post Journal is not housed with the Manitoba Archives, but it is with the Provincial Archives of Alberta in Edmonton, so I was unable to extract any of the details from Nahoy's life during that time. William and Nahoy passed the winter at Oxford House for 1816 and 17 with their five youngest children. Anne, age 15, Mary, age 13, James, age 11, Thomas, age 9, and Colin, 1. William departed for York in mid-August of 1817. He made purchases of cloth and flour and oatmeal and returned home. He was back at York in early October in very poor health. The surgeon from the Britannia, Dr. Keyes, was sent by Captain Edmund to attend to William, according to the York Factory Journal. By early December, William was worse. The Oxford House Journal for 1817 through 1818 is filed in the Hudson's Bay Company archives as B.156-A-6, written by William Linklater. January 1, 1818, he recorded, All the Men Enjoying Themselves. William never recorded such personal observations. On February 1st, Linkletter wrote, I'm sorry to hear Mr. Sinclair is in such a bad state of health, he much being afflicted with the dropsy. Dropsy was the term used for heart failure. On February 7th, soldiers remain at the fishing house all yesterday that they might get a large quantity of fish with them. They started this morning and did not leave a single fish after them, which was very inconsiderate, we having so many mouths to maintain. Food was scarce and supplies all but dwindled. William wrote his will on January 5th, 1818, and a codicil to the will on April 1st. For two of the younger sons to visit England, which I believe he meant James and Thomas, as Nahoy did not want to send Colin, her youngest child, away. William died April 20th, 1818. He is buried at Sloop Creek Cemetery at York Factory, where his son William Jr. erected a monument. William spent 34 years in North America in service to the Hudson's Bay Company. This brought me to the end of understanding Nahoy's life through William's record with the Hudson's Bay Company. News of William's passing traveled quickly, and it was evident he was well-respected and missed by family and friends. James Swain, master at York House, 1815-1816, to wrote a letter to James Bird saying, 
It is a most painful duty, yet I must continue and inform you that since my last letter, Mr. Sinclair, an officer who has spent an active life in this and whose mind had acquired by long practice such a strong partiality for its interest that he continued to speak on the general business with a lively feeling for its success until within a few hours of his death, which took place on the night of the 20th of April after a long and painful illness. In his will, William left many of his personal belongings to close friends, calling Thomas Bunn his beloved friend. Thomas was married to Nahue and William's first child, Phoebe. To William Hemmings Cook, he left a sum of money to purchase an agreeable token as a memorial of their long acquaintance and friendship. To Mr. James Swain, in consideration of the very long friendship and intimacy that existed between them, he left his watch chain. His personal papers were left in the hands of William Cook and Thomas Bunn for them to destroy anything not relevant to moneyed transactions. William saw that Nahaway was protected financially as well as their children. William left to his brother Thomas the land known as East Unquay in Orkney with a farm, a farmhouse, and a detached cottage. While William was in Orkney in 1814, he left in the hands of Adam Isbister in Strumness the sum of a hundred pounds for his sisters Anne and Mary upon his death, which makes me think his sister Jane had married or passed away. He also left clothing with Isbister for two of his younger sons when they visited for education, which again confirms to me he understood Nahaway did not want Colin to be taken to England for education. James was sent in 1819. Colin, taken from his mother's arms as a seven-year-old, was not following William's instructions. At William's death, Nahaway had five children requiring her care. Anne, 16, Mary, 14, James, 9, Thomas, 8, and Colin, 20 months. I can imagine the future was daunting for her, having previously lost her connections to her Cree roots to some degree. Her older children would have been a comfort helping where they could. Nahue was 44 years old. Nahue stayed at York Factory for a time following William's death, but returned to Oxford House. The Hudson's Bay Company allowed her to remain at Oxford House, granting her special permission for this, which I suspect William arranged beforehand. Nahue was always referred to as Mrs. Sinkler or by her name. Her annuity in 1820 and 1821 was 14 pounds, 4 shillings, 5 pence. She most likely earned additional income from the goods she made, such as pemmican, footwear, and clothing. William Jr. traveled to Orkney in the fall of 1818, probably to let his father's family know of his passing. Some accounts say he took two of his younger brothers with him to be educated, but they were not listed on the ship's log. Anne married John Hodges Spencer in the fall of 1818, or the spring of 1819. Spencer was the accountant at York Factory in 1819. Phoebe became seriously ill in 1819. The doctor, quote, bled her copiously several times. By May, she was able to travel to Oxford House to see her mother. Thomas Bunn, Phoebe's husband, became manager at Rock Depot, which was formerly Gordon House, which brought Phoebe much closer to her mother at Oxford House. Jane and husband, James Kirkness, moved to York by 1819. 
They were married by Indigenous ceremony in 1818. Nahue's son James was sent to Orkney the summer of 1819 as a 10-year-old to be educated, traveling as passenger number 23 in the care of Alexander Kennedy. William Jr. returned on that summer ship along with John Franklin. William Jr. and Franklin traveled together to Oxford House, and Franklin wrote of what he saw, saying, This was formerly a post of some consequence to the Hudson's Bay Company, but at present it exhibits unequivocal signs of decay. Holy Lake, viewed from an eminence behind Oxford House, exhibits a pleasing prospect, and its numerous islands, varying much in shape and elevation, contribute to break that uniformity of scenery which proves so appalling to a traveller in this country. As referenced by James P. Delgado's Journey to the Polar Sea by John Franklin. A member of Franklin's crew, George Back, wrote, There is a long house of logs and a store, opposite as well as several small huts, the whole enclosed with stockades. The roofs of these houses are covered with the bark of trees and kept on by large pieces of softwood crossed. There is a garden which produces corn and cabbages, but what most attracts the attention of a stranger is the number of large dogs lurking everywhere. These animals are of the greatest use in winter to drag the sledges from one part of the country to another, end quote referred to in C. Stuart Houston's Arctic Artist, The Journal and Paintings of George Back, Midshipman with Franklin, 1819-1822. The garden at Oxford House produced 8 to 10 bushels of fine barley and a variety of vegetables, according to the Oxford House District Report. The post was inhabited by 40 people by 1820, most of whom were women and children, in the fall of 1820, Nahue had her three children living with her, Mary, Thomas, and Colin. The Post Journal refers to a hunter called the White Governor, a friend of the family who was repairing Mrs. Sinclair's house. Jane and her husband, James Kirkness, spent Christmas 1820 at Oxford House. Muscatachi, an Indian and friend, arrived at Oxford House on December 26 from the North River most likely to spend the holiday and welcome in the new year with Nahue and family. Jane and James returned to York on December 27th. In 1823, after his retirement, Jane went with James Kirkness to Orkney, where Christianity was expected, so they married by Christian ceremony, whereby Jane kept her own name, and they moved one month later. James later died 6th of November, 1843, at the age of 69. His tombstone reads, erected by Jane Sinclair in memory of her beloved husband. That Jane kept her name is a significant detail to me and undoubtedly an uncommon practice. In 1823, Nahue was still at Oxford House. Someone of influence and power decided Colin was to attend school in Orkney, Nahue did not want him to go, and I believe she and William had come to this understanding before his death. Mary and Thomas were witness to her grief. Mary named her first son Colin Inkster, and it was he who later told the story to W.J. Healy. Colin Sinclair was taken from his mother and put on the ship on the 10th of September, 1823. Nahue cut a lock of Colin's hair. 
Healy wrote that Colin Inkster told him his grandmother Nahoway, quote, used to keep among her treasures in a silk bag a lock of flocks and hair she had cut from my uncle Colin's head when he was a child. She had it until she died. George Simpson was present at the boat on the day Colin was taken from his mother. Indian women were not allowed on company ships. He was governor of the Northern District at that time and would have had the power to send Colin to Orkney. In what I have read about Simpson, it seems in line with his previous actions to seek some sort of revenge on Colin Robertson and those who thought highly of him. Thomas was older than Colin. Why would he not have been sent ahead of Colin? It makes no sense to me. The ship landed in Orkney, 16th of October, 1823. It is impossible for me to imagine my seven-year-old child being taken from me and put on a ship with no idea of his return. Nahue never saw her precious son, Colin Robertson Sinclair, again. In June of 1824, Joseph Cook and his wife Catherine, Nahoy's daughter, and their five children moved to the Red River Colony, and with them they brought Nahoy along with Mary, age 20, and Thomas, age 14. They arrived at the colony the 17th of August, 1824, confirmed by the Upper Fort Gary Post Journal. Winter was on its way, and they quickly began building a winter shelter. All new arrivals to the colony were given flour, grain, and some fresh meat. They were given some tools and supplies to help with building a cabin. Nahoway and family would have stayed with Phoebe and Thomas Bunn, whose lot was a 100 acres on the east side of the Red River. Nahoway was not entitled to a land grant because of William's death, but all other retired Hudson's Bay Company servants were in receipt of land. Nahoway made her first purchase at the colony, November 1824, when she purchased three yards of blue cloth, two yards of common white shroud, a narrow colored belt, two buffalo pocket knives, three yards of common green shroud, one plain blanket, one and a half point, one common wool hot, one pair of woman's cotton hose, a half a yard of fine cloth, three cotton nine-eighth shawls, one skein of twine, number one, two yards, and six pounds of coffee with a total cost of six pounds, three shillings, as detailed in the Upper Fort Gary account book. Thomas and Mary were baptized on the 1st of February, 1825, and were listed as the children of William Sinclair and a half-breed native, despite the clergy being well aware of Nahoy's name. When Nahoy was baptized on February 6th, she was listed as number 442, Margaret, reputed wife of William Sinclair, deceased. Reputed. Nahoy and William were married, a union blessed by Indigenous ceremony, and were together for 26 years and raised 11 children. Baptism required an English name, and Nahoy was given the name of Margaret. Her family asserts that no one called her by this English name except the clergy. John Angster came to the Hudson's Bay Company as a mason at York Factory in 1819, going on to the colony in 1823. He was called affectionately Orkney Johnny. He wed Mary Sinclair on the 20th of January, 1826. 
Her six-pound annuity was then directed to John after they wed. Margaret, their first child, arrived April 24, 1827. Margaret married William Richard Sutherland, and they were my great-great-grandparents. James returned from the Orkneys to his mother in 1827. He wintered at Fort Albany for the 1826-1827 winter, making his way to the Red River Colony that spring. James was a free spirit and had no wish to be the servant of a Hudson Bay Company. He became a free trader, which made him unpopular with George Simpson, governor of the Northern Districts. James was known and respected for his belief in equality for all people. He was witness to the changes in treatment of Indigenous people at the colony, where women of mixed blood were considered lower than white women. He spoke up at the trial of a French Métis man, Pierre Guillemont Sayer, for trading furs, an act deemed illegal in 1849. The court found Sayer guilty, but applied no fine or sentence because of the overwhelming support of other Métis, including James Sinclair. This case helped end the monopoly of the Hudson's Bay Company in the fur trade. James Sinclair's adventures of leading two groups of settlers from the colony to Oregon, crossing the Rocky Mountains in 1841 and 1854, earned him the honor of having landmarks named for him. The Sinclair Canyon, Sinclair Creek, Mount Sinclair, and Sinclair Pass near what is now Radium Hot Springs in British Columbia. Nahue remarried, though no legal record of that marriage has been found. The man's name was John Forbes. They were married before the 12th of November, 1827, as her annuity of 10 pounds was paid to John Forbes after that date. Women were not permitted to have property in their own name. Thomas was still living with Nahue at that time. Donna Sutherland did extensive research to determine who John Forbes was but he was not an easy man to find in the historical record. What she was able to unearth was a John Forbes who would have passed Nahue's path at Oxford House in 1818. A John Forbes was listed as a resident of the post at Island Lake in 1821, where Joseph Cook and Nahue's daughter Catherine lived, a post very close to Oxford House. This man was written in the servants' contracts as being sober, honest, and obedient. Nahue's annuity was irregular, as was Mary's, and John Forbes took action to have that remedied. William Sinclair's executor of the estate, Alexander Kennedy, died in 1832 while in London, leaving William's state unmanaged. His widow, Agathas, was a longtime friend of Nahue's. Agatha's son, William Kennedy, was the famous Arctic explorer who went in search of Franklin. Thomas married Hannah Cummings in 1832, and together they had seven children before her death at age 34. A few years later, Thomas married Carolyn Pruden, 20 years his junior, with whom he had another six children. Nahue received no correspondence that can be traced from daughter Jane or from Colin. By 1835, Donna Sutherland details in her book where all the Sinclair children were. Phoebe and Thomas Bunn were living in the parish of St. Paul at Red River. Harriet Sinclair, daughter of James, told James Healy that Thomas was a jolly and amusing man who enjoyed telling children the stories from his early life, 
such as the French Revolution and the horror in England when the French king and Queen Marie Antoinette were beheaded. He remembered the fires in London during the Lord George Gordon riots. Catherine and Joseph Cook were living in the parish of St. Peter, called the Indian Settlement at the north end of the colony. Joseph became the first schoolmaster there. They had 14 children together. William Jr. resided at many inland posts, but often visited the Red River Colony. He and his wife Mary had eight children. Interesting, William was the clerk at what is now Fort Francis, my hometown, from 1824 to 1835. The clerk in charge in 1837 and 1843 to 1844, and was chief trader from 1844 through 1845. Very little information was found about son John, born 1799 at Oxford House. Jane and James Kirkness were settled in Orkney, having moved in James' retirement in 1822. Both died there, having had five children. Anne and John Spencer moved to East Main Rupert River in 1835, together with Betsy and Robert Miles. Betsy, you will recall, was William's daughter, whom George Simpson had a child with. Anne and John had 11 children. Mary and John Inkster lived in Red River, and they lost a child. A son, James, died in 1834. James and Elizabeth Bird were living in Red River and lost two of their children in 1834. Four-year-old daughter Elizabeth and newly born son James. Thomas and Hannah lived at the Rapids, not far from Nahoy and John Forbes. And Colin remained away, and no one knew how his life turned out. A report of a Colin Sinclair drowning at sea had reached them, and they presumed him to be dead. Nahoe continued to sit at the river's edge on a slab of limestone, waiting for Colin's return. She was now a grandmother many times over. She grieved the loss of many grandchildren. Daughter Phoebe died the 29th of June, 1848, at the age of 55. In 1852, a massive flood, the second of its kind, wiped out much of the colony. Mary and John Inkster were building their two-story log home, Seven Oaks, when the flood struck. The children were sent away to safety on higher ground while Mary and John stayed on the second floor of their house and survived. The flood may have been too much for Catherine as she died September of 1852, laid to rest beside her husband Joseph. James took the second group of settlers from Red River to the Oregon Territory in 1854. At the Cascades Portage, James was struck by a stray bullet in a dispute between others and was killed. William Jr. served the Hudson's Bay Company for many years, retired to Brockville, Ontario, along with Betsy and Robert Miles, where he died the 12th of October, 1868, just before his 71st birthday. Nahue died at Seven Oaks in 1863, at the proximate age of 91, if my calculations are correct, though we will never know for certain. Age was not an important point to be made among the Cree. Nahue outlived many of her children and her husband. She is buried in St. John's Anglican Cathedral Cemetery beside her daughter Phoebe. Hi hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi hi for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>